Gresham College presents What is the Value of Finance and Insurance to the Economy? by Anne Richards, CBO, CBE, FRSE. We had two exam questions which were set for this evening. What's the value of finance and insurance to the economy? And is the right regulatory framework in place to underpin that value? And it is not the first time that I've been asked to talk about the social and economic value of financial services. And sadly, I don't think it will be the last time. But it is a particularly interesting time to be giving such a speech. Because according to some commentators, the vote to leave the European Union, albeit by a narrow margin, was in part due to a collective howl of protest by those who feel very much left behind by globalisation. And of course, who's been at the forefront of globalisation? Well, it's the finance industry. So it's very topical. Now, you might say that it comes as no surprise, given what I do as someone who works within the finance industry, but I think it is fair to say that too few people understand the real benefit that the industry brings to society and the difference that it makes to their lives. And it's interesting that banks and financial institutions in general are much more highly respected and trusted in countries where a significant proportion of people are either unbanked or with very limited access to the financial system. So I think that is a small straw of comfort for us. But we need to make no bones about it, I think. If the industry is unappreciated by society at large, it's our fault as an industry. It's not anyone else's fault. And as an industry, I think we've best been exceptionally poor at communicating the value of what we do. And at worst, we've been actually destroyers of value in the economy at large. So there's a very real risk, I think, that if we don't mend ourselves, then we in finance could actually lose our social licence to operate. And in my view, that in aggregate and in the round for the economy would be an extremely bad thing for us all. So what I'm going to say over the next few minutes, it will hardly remedy, I think, the very widespread lack of understanding that I see out there about finance. But if anybody in the room, particularly those of you not from within the industry, walk out tonight with a clearer idea of why financial services are a vital cog in the economic machine, then I think I will have achieved something today. So I want to talk about two things. First of all, I want to spend some time on financial services as a mechanism for economic conversion, how it turns thousands of scattered tiny pots of savings into a giant pool of working capital that is put to work for the benefit of a much wider community, and how it transforms short-term money into long-term investments, and again, for the greater benefit of all society and the economy at large. So that's the first thing. The second thing is about financial regulation itself. Now, whenever we talk about financial regulation, particularly when you've got tennis and football on tonight, I can feel the collective yawns already out there, but please do bear with us. This is an important topic. And as was mentioned, I worked at CERN. I worked at the European Laboratory for Particle Physics for Nuclear Research before I came into the city. And I know that the only true laws that are fixed and immutable are those of physics, even if our understanding of them evolves over a period of time. Everything else is a matter of negotiation, interpretation, and judgment. And I think that is a very important thought to hang on to when we think about financial regulation. It is an evolving discipline in science. So let's start with my point around finance as a mechanism for economic conversion. 
Most people do not connect those headlines that you see on the news, on the financial news. Millions wiped off, billions wiped off of stock markets with their own money, with their own savings, or as Professor Kay would say, other people's money. There's a disconnect. But by pooling the savings of people, finance does create these deep wells of capital for industry, for commerce, even for government itself, to use for growth, for wealth creation, for jobs. And it's also a really important risk diversifier for savers. So the consumer gains, the citizen gains, and it should be a win-win affair. Without this collectivisation of savings, our lives would be substantially poorer. Fewer houses would be built, fewer roads would be constructed, and many businesses simply wouldn't get off the ground. <coughs> As a very concrete example, within M&G and within its property division, a few, weeks, a few days ago, in fact, the Queen opened a new children's hospital in Liverpool. It has 16 state-of-the-art operating theatres and the capacity to treat 275,000 children in a year. And part of the funding for that hospital came from funds run by M&G. It's not our money, it's other people's money. It's savers who've invested with us. So that's an example of how you transmit small pots of money into a greater economic good. There's another example which I think I had to mention tonight, given the Welsh match, because in 2012 and 2013, the Welsh Assembly, which is very topical obviously, uh, wanted to create a borrowing facility for 17 Welsh housing associations so they could fund new house building projects and other essential initiatives. So they're, they're really concrete examples of how, at its best, finance industry can work with a conduit for all this. But it also does help individuals to spread their own risks. So the great Victorian invention of the mutual society was an absolutely classic example of this, and we're better to be talking about this today in some respects. So some risks which are too much for the individual to bear, for the unlucky individual to bear, can become completely acceptable for society as a whole if that burden, through insurance pooling, is spread. And it's the same with investment. So let's take another topical subject at the moment, which is the corporate debt market. So companies issue bonds. That is just other words for borrowing money. And they use those bonds, that money that they've borrowed, to invest in factories or warehouses, to create goods, services or whatever. And that brings choice to consumers and it creates jobs. But it's a really expensive process to issue bonds. If a company has to go to each and every one of you in the room to collect your money together in small amounts, to then put it to work. So as a result, companies set minimum contribution levels to keep the cost down. But that then effectively excludes the small saver. But a mutual fund, a fantastic invention invented in the UK, which is just a pool, a collected pool of individual investors, that offers people the ability with just a few hundred quid to put into a fund to lend a small amount to end businesses not just to one blue chip company, potentially, but possibly hundreds of them. So again, the individuals benefit because they earn interest on those the, their, what they're lending. The companies benefit because they're getting access to that investment. And of course, again, there's a pooling of risk because that individual saver is exposed not just to one company, but to many, and the risk of a default is thereby spread. So at its best, it's a win-win situation. But not every innovation in financial services is useful, and we can't stand here and claim that that is the case. 
Occasionally, though, reading the headlines, you could be forgiven for believing that everything is bad. And I think that is what I want to emphasize tonight. We see constant innovation. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. But the change in communications, the change in technology are making possible a huge range of things that benefit us all. So whether it's Apple Pay, Bitcoin, crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending, contactless, all of these are new and great innovations coming out of the financial sector. And I'm certain that not all of them will prove useful, but some of them will, and they'll be lasting. Now, the other vital aspect, I think, of financial services, which I want to touch on, is what's known in financial jargon as maturity transformation, which is a horrible phrase. But it covers something which is really important to the functioning of the wider economy. So I've explained how banks and building societies, insurance companies, mutual funds, they gather small bits of money and transform them into larger pools, which can then spread risk and and be used to invest. But they also do something else, which is transform short-term money into long-term money. So what do I mean by that? So when you deposit money in the bank, you're lending money to the bank. Again, often not understood. But the bank doesn't lock it in a vault and not touch it until you want it back. If it did that, it would have to charge you an awful lot of money for all the services it provides to you, which we often take for granted. So the ability to write checks, at least for the time being, the ability to access your cash through ATMs or to do bank transfers or set up direct debits or standing orders. It doesn't charge you very much at all for that. But what it does do is it puts your money to work in another way, by lending your money out. It's conventional banking, by lending your money out to other people who want to borrow money to buy a house, to buy a car, to fund a small business. Now, the money that you save with the bank, you expect to be able to get back whenever you want it. But banks know it's very unlikely that all of you will ask for it back at the same time. So when they lend your money out to other people in the form of a 25-year mortgage, they rely upon that fact. They have transformed your instant access deposit into a 25-year loan. That's maturity transformation. And it is societally incredibly useful because when you're trying to buy a house, you would find it very difficult to find someone else in this room that would be willing to lend you the money for 25 years to do it. There wouldn't be a mortgage market. And that ability to balance the needs of saver and borrower collectively has effectively what has created Britain as a nation of homeowners, for example, rather than renters. It's a wonderful piece of conjuring. But there is a risk that it turns from conjuring trick to confidence trick. And that's at the heart of this, and it's at the heart of what went on in the great financial crisis. If people ever lose confidence in their ability to get the money back, there will be a run on the bank. And that's exactly what happened to Northern Rock, and it's every regulator's greatest fear. Now, if there's a profit to be had then sure enough, financial services will find a way to try and take advantage of it in some new and different way, perhaps without regard to the long-term consequence. And the mortgage market is no different. So have any of you watched the film The Big Short? Who's seen the film The Big Short? I mean, it's fantastic. Um, But it's very, very um, salutary as well. Because the mortgage market took one step further. So rather than just relying on deposits and lending, it created... Financial securitization, one of our wonderful jargony words. Individual mortgages were packaged up into a single pot. 
repackaged into smaller pieces with a little bit of everybody's mortgage and then sold on to individual investors. And frankly, it had disastrous consequences in the US. That was a classic example, as Michael Lewis said, of taking long-term money and turning it into short-term losses, short-term rather permanent losses. So that is a really appropriate moment to bridge to my second point around financial regulation. If you're not familiar with the financial world, it must often seem that regulators are always bolting the door after the racketeering, profiteering horse has bolted. A few scalps here for insider trading, the odd prison sentence for something truly egregious, but by and large, the man and the woman in the street still sense that there's something wholly inequitable about the financial system and that it is somehow stacked against, stacked against them. And I think that's where we, we in the industry need to take a step back. Finance doesn't work in a vacuum. It has to operate within a broader, more, broader moral, ethical, legal, and even ideological set of parameters, which are set by society. And I think one way to think of this is the tension between those who, on the one hand, believe in and support laissez-faire principles at one extreme, capitalism, red and tooth and claw, and those who really favour a state-sponsored centralised control. And as this waxes and wanes, as society waxes and wanes between the two extremes, so does financial regulation. And typically what happens is that freedoms are allowed until someone takes it too far. And then the pendulum swings back the other way. So the recent history of British banks is a very good example of this. In the heady 1990s, the stolid building societies, which had been there for 100 years or more, were allowed to jettison their mutual status in return very often for a short-term gain to individual account holders and embrace those red-blooded capital markets. But it turned out horribly wrong. And when the credit crunch came in 2007 and 2008, the first victims were, of course, those very building societies. And Northern Rock, which was once a local institution which claimed to lend to one in three homes in the northeast of England, was the first to crumble. So what was the regulatory response to that? Well, once the immediate panic was over and the most vulnerable members of the banking community had been rescued either by stronger competitors or by the state, they moved in to try and ensure this could never happen again. And there was a whole raft of regulations and increased capital requirements. So if you look at RBS, for example, if you were to apply today's measures to RBS as it was when it tried to take over ABN AMRO, or it did take over ABN AMRO, at that stage, it had an equivalent equity tier one ratio of something like 2%. Today, that's, that's a measure of, if you like, how safe, how strong the balance sheet is. The equivalent number today is 13% on a much tighter definition. So you can see the impact that regulation has had. But actually, history on a longer term cycle is littered with examples of this dance back and forward, regulatory easing followed by tightening, followed by easing. And there's a sense that we may be approaching the peak of the tightening cycle and perhaps moving towards more of an easing cycle, although interesting if the events of the last few weeks, last couple of weeks, changes that. But there's another classic example from the US, which is the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which separated investment banking and commercial banking and sought to limit the powers of commercial banks to engaging risky stock market activity with depositors' money. That was dead by the 1990s, pretty much the same time as we were going through the demutualisation phase, but is now seen as one of the critical factors 
in the cause of the financial crisis. So in this environment, regulators are tempted to try to legislate to remove all risk from the system. But of course, banking as a system cannot work without risk-taking, and this is this fundamental tension. But what they do in moving down that path of trying to remove risk is be as prescriptive as possible about individual rules. I don't know how big today's rule book is, but I bet it's a lot bigger than that of any predecessor regulator. They also have a tendency to move rules from one sector to another without necessarily thinking through all the unintended consequences. So I think we need to look at that in the round and think, is there any better way of approaching that to avoid moving down a prescriptive risk-based approach without thinking about the broader judgment that might surround that? Because at the end of the day, it's a matter of balance between profitable risk, which benefits all, and protections of individuals from the unscrupulous. So to summarise then and conclude, I think the financial services industry should be, it can be, and for the most part, actually, I believe it is more of a force for good than for the opposite. It does play a vital role in the economy as a conduit for people's savings to business, to government, to other organisations. It does help create jobs, and the people who hold those jobs have savings which can be funnelled into other businesses. And so there is a real virtuous circle, if you will, when it goes well. But too often, though, virtue has been in short supply. And the financial services industry, I think, has been guilty from time to time of extreme excess and at times downright criminality. So all of this, I think, cannot absolve us of the responsibility to root out the fraud, the malpractice, the criminal activity. And when we are entrusted with other people's money, we really have to do better and we need to work with regulators together and others to do that. Given its intrinsic value to the economy, we must accept it should be more heavily regulated than other industries. But we cannot and we shouldn't attempt through regulation to remove all risk from the system. And that's why I think we need a system built on incentives, on values and on principles, rather just on tight capital requirements and rules. And we need to work hard to hold ourselves to the highest standard against them. For more information, please go to the Gresham College website, www.gresham.ac.uk.